and captured him. They say, we have no proof that he was arrested, but they say they arrested him. This guy was able to do all of that and he came back with not a hair out of place. He was able. He was able to be taken in alive. I mean, it's a miracle how they did it, because you know normally they kill and they shoot you seventy. They shoot you seven hundred times. Kill just kill just over. They overkill, but somehow they managed to have restraint. They figured it out. They preserved life. Nobody got shot. They gave the suspect multiple opportunities to kill them. The suspect even warned them, hey, I'm capable of killing you. I said, I'll kill you. They gave him opportunities to kill him because you know how they say, oh, you got a split second to respond and you got to do what you got to do, you know, because we're trying to make it back home. Well, they actually gave the suspect opportunities to not allow them to make it back home. I mean, they gave him that. And they got through it anyway. It was absolutely incredible to watch them work. I mean, it's like, man, this is this is textbook police work right here. I mean, this is top-notch academy. Damn. Maybe they can teach the other cops, the white cops specifically, because the black cops don't go around gunning down black folks or any folks. Uh, somehow the black people, the black cops, don't just go around killing unarmed people. Somehow the black cops, maybe the black cops get trained at a different academy. I don't know. It's some, I can't put my hand on it. But the data is not coming back right. What's up, Thomas said? Yeah, the data, it's just, it's something they figured out, man. They they, they had it right. Uh, kudos to their teachers, their instructors, uh, and them for uh, following, uh, following their training. Like, man, they did that. It was absolutely unbelievable. So we're going to talk about that in about 30 minutes. We're going to talk about that on Willie D Live channel. You don't want to miss it, fam. I'm going all the way in. All the way in. I'm just getting warmed up right now. I'm just getting warmed up. So 30 minutes, fam. Give me 30 minutes. I'm going to be on the Willie D Live channel. If you're on YouTube right now, I mean, if you're on uh, Facebook, you can click the link in the description 
and um, it'll take you to the Willie D Live channel on YouTube, and you can just uh, click that button and subscribe. Make sure you subscribe. You want to make sure you get all of. You want to make sure you get all of your um, your notifications. When you when you subscribe, make sure you select all notifications. Otherwise, you may not get any. The only notifications you're gonna get from me is when I drop a new video. That's it. I don't send out notifications for nothing else. So click that bell and select all notifications. Otherwise, you may not get any. James, who is this? James Martin. Appreciate you, James Martin. Yeah. So, fam, get your comments ready. It's about to go down. 30 minutes. It's about to go down on the Willie D Live channel on YouTube, all right? Until then, fam, no more talk. Now, there are also regulations against other type of animal fights, for example, cockfighting. And a first-time conviction for running a cockfight is a gross misdemeanor that carries up to 364 days in jail. A second-time offense is a Category E felony with up to four years in state prison. And a third-time offense is a Category D felony with up to four years in the state prison. And the judge will be like, fuck, this guy's just, he's unsupervisable. Like, we can't get him to behave. And they'll say, you know what, all right, we're just going to take you off paper. It's just a waste of time at this point. Well, I had actually thought about doing that. I thought, you know, if I would, would if I get out, violate, go straight back to prison, I'll go back for a year or so, and I could get them to quash my paper. The problem with that is that that won't work with someone who has restitution. If you have a massive amount of restitution, they'll just put you back on paper. They're not going to quash your paper because you're unsupervisable. Now, I know several guys who've done it. Um, for instance, John Boziak, which is a guy I wrote a story about. And uh, he's going to be in a couple of the, uh, of the grind uh, vlogs. And uh, he just did... Uh, concrete and uh, MSCS media and um, I'm going to do a podcast with him and just a bunch of stuff's going on with him. He actually violated, went back to prison and they quashed his paper. I think he had like a year or two worth of uh, supervised release. He got out. He, he got in trouble again. They grabbed him. Um, he never got charged, but he knew inter just interaction with the police can get you violated. Now, they didn't charge him, but he was afraid that he might get charged, so he took off on the run. And um, when they caught up with him and he went back in front of the judge, the judge said, look, I'm going to, you know, you're going to get like six months 
and I'm just going to quash your paper. You're, you're unsupervisable. We keep catching. You keep taking off and getting caught here and caught there, and you're just, you're just not going to behave. So they quashed his paper. And I know lots of guys that have come back to prison. Like, I'll see them leave. They come back, and they're like, yeah, man, it's great. I'm coming back for six months, but when I get out, I'm done with paper. So it's not going to work with me. Um, and here's the thing about being on papers, a lot of people don't understand is that you don't really have the same rights as everybody else anymore. Your probation officer can, can, can basically violate you for any reason at all. I can be violated for anything. If I'm caught, um, let's say hanging out with a, a felon, they can... They can, if, if I don't have permission to be around that person, they can violate me, send me back to jail for a year, 18 months. I know a guy who was hiding money, like he was paying his restitution, but he was hiding money. They violated him. He got 18 months. Um, I know a guy, and I, I know about four guys, but I'll give you one example. There was this guy, uh, a black guy, super nice guy. He'd been in jail for like 10 years for a, a drug conspiracy. Well, then he got out. He was in Florida. He got out and he got caught in a vehicle. Like it was an SUV, uh, some SUV. He got, they got pulled over. He was in the car with three other guys that were felons. All of them had been arrested for drugs. The car was searched. And when the police searched the car, they found, uh, they found like 30000 in cash. So finding $30,000 in cash is not illegal. Um, but what the cops did was they didn't charge anybody. They just said, you know, okay, well, we're going to notify your probation officer. So they notified his probation officer. He went back in front of the judge. Probation officer said, listen, the guy was one, out of the jurisdiction. Two, he was hanging out with three other felons, which he's not supposed to be doing. And they were all had drug convictions and $30,000 was found inside of the vehicle. He hasn't been charged with anything. But they used that to go ahead and violate him. And they, they gave him, I think they gave him like about 18 months, might have been 12 months, but I think they gave him 18 months and they said, when you get out, we're going to quash your paper. But the fact of the matter is he had to go back to prison for a year to 18 months just because he happened to be in the car with three other guys. Now, look, they were probably doing the, a drug deal or something and he just didn't get caught. Okay, I know, I know that. The judge knows that. The point is, is that they can use pretty much anything. For instance, if I got into a vehicle and the car got pulled over and it was searched, and let's say there was a gun, the guy with me had a gun. One, as a being a, a felon, hanging out with someone that has a, a weapon, unless that person is willing to say the weapon is his, and I have, didn't even know the weapon was there, I could get charged with something called constructive possession, which means I had constructive possession of a weapon. I didn't have the weapon, but they can allude to the fact or basically tell the judge or the jury, whatever, that he had the gun for me, 
Like that was really my gun or I told him to carry a gun because I couldn't have it. Like guys will have their girlfriend go get a gun and keep it in her purse, but really that's their gun. You can get three to five years for that as a felon. You don't even have to have a gun. The point is, is that if I got into a car, some guy got pulled over, that guy had a gun, the police officer knows I'm on federal probation because it's going to come up and he notifies my probation officer and my probation officer are unclear of what this exactly means, but Reese was held on no bond. Academics at the time this occurred thought that this arrest had something to do with his previous arrest, and maybe thought that Lil Reese didn't follow the rules the judge gave him in order to be released. Now this seems like a pretty good theory, but as I stated before, Lou Reese was acquitted of his previous charges back in 2015, so it couldn't be that. Anyways, Reese was eventually released a few days later. It's once again unknown how this case played out. Lil Reese's seventh and final arrest took place in May 2018, after the Chicago Police Department and FBI Task Force raided Reese's apartment in the South Loop of Chicago. It was unknown what Lil Reese did for the authorities to obtain a search warrant, but during the raid, agents recovered over $2,200 worth of kush, a digital scale, and a bundle of cash. Reports never stated how much money the Fed seized from Lil Reese, but he later revealed in an interview with DJ Academics that one of the FBI agents who raided his place was former NFL player Charles Tillman, who joined the FBI training program in 2016 after he retired from the NFL. Charles Tillman, according to Lil Reese, is the one who seized the money from him which was reportedly $100,000. After the feds made this discovery, they arrested Reese and booked him on felony drug charges. A year later, it was revealed in court that prosecutors offered to lower the felony charge to a misdemeanor if Reese pleaded guilty and did one year of probation. Lou Reese would also have to pay a $584 fine. Reese obviously accepted this offer and pled guilty. Lou Reese hasn't been arrested since, and I hope it continues to stay that way. That's all I have for today. I'm out. <laughs> like, this shit just doesn't fucking jive, dude. This, and you know what I mean? But... Here I am. Trying to give her the benefit of the doubt, or well, you know, we had we had already had my son together, and I knew he's mine for sure. <clears throat> and you know, I still love her, and even to this day, I still love her. I still love her to death, and we're still married, even though I haven't talked to her in months, and we've been separated for four years. I haven't mm -hmm. seen her in four years, and um, since Nebraska. So this this whole thing went down in Nebraska, and you know, our kids get taken away. <coughs> Excuse me, <coughs> and I have a warrant out for my arrest. Mm -hmm. Because I just took off from after all this shit just happened down here in in Florida. Let me get some water. Shit's getting wild. I'm parched. Yeah. Now I'm I'm because <laughs> yeah. Keep in mind, by this point, I'm I'm done with the with the book. Right. 
The book's been written. Yeah, we're into book number two now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Books. Yeah, like I said, this whole this whole whole other situation, and um, yeah. So, you know, the cops they get involved, and I got a warrant out for my arrest. So I'm like, fuck, dude, what the fuck? You know what I mean? I'm in my head. I'm like, dude, this bitch just fucked me. You know what I mean? Like I came out here to fucking chill, and you fucked me because you're an idiot. You know what I mean? So. The fucking police get involved, and, you know, sure enough, they finally figure out who I am, and they run my name, and they came to the house to get me one morning, and <clears throat> this is the whole thing. Let me tell you this story. So, okay, so these these cops show up. The gummies wore off. Yeah, I was it's all say, coming to them. Yeah, 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 say, yeah. Pulling teeth before. It's like, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so, so I'm working. I'm working at this little machine shop um, next door to the house in, in, this, in, in this small town in Nebraska. And I'm over there at work, and I see two I see two sheriff's uh, cars roll up to my house. And I already knew what time it was. So I call my wife, and I, and I was right next door. I'm like, like, the police were outside. I'm going to jail. She's like, what, where? I'm like, they're outside the house. She's like, okay, just stay over there. And I was like, listen, if they know where I live, they know where I work. <clears throat> you know what I mean? He lives here. He works there. It's not very fucking hard. Mm-hmm. So... I remember what happened. I think they left. She told them I wasn't there, and they left. And then they drove around the back of the shop. And then, so I leave the front door of the shop, and I walk into the house. And I'm fucking hiding inside the house. And, like, the the cops are, like, surrounding the house now. Now they know I have a warrant out for my arrest. They know who I am. They're there to fucking take me to jail. They got the whole fucking house surrounded, dude. They're beating on the door. They got flashlights in the windows. My wife's not, my wife's out there just arguing with him on the front lawn. Like, he's not here. My wife, my wife, bless her heart, she's five foot even, 120 pounds, and she's Cuban, and her English isn't, you know what I mean? Not not like ours. You can tell she's not a native, you know, so she's out there arguing with him. They finally come in the house. They finally find me in the basement. I'm inside of a cabinet. I'm hiding inside of a fucking cabinet inside of the basement. I can hear them all walking around the house for like an hour searching for me. I'm not coming out. I'm not coming out, motherfuckers. You're going to have to come down here and find me. Hide and seek, motherfuckers. You know what I mean? You're it. You dig what I'm saying? So I'm in the basement. I'm inside of a cabinet. And I'm, I'm small, so I can curl up in a ball. And they pull open the cabinet door, and he shines the light in there. And I just stay still. And he closes the cabinet. And he was like, and they were going to walk away. And then I heard, I heard, I heard the footsteps stop. And then I heard somebody say something real low. Oh, yeah, he saw you. Yeah, I heard him say something real low. And then they fucking yank open the cabinet. They got the tasers on me. They got two of them with tasers on me. I'm like, fuck. And they're like, come out, your hands up. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to crawl out of this fucking cabinet, dude. And he just grabs my arm. They yank me out of the fucking cabinet. Dude, I come outside. I'm getting arrested. My wife is fighting the police. She's physically fighting the police in the mm, front yard. God bless her. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> like, all right. She's going ham for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. she's fucking going ham. She's yeah. screaming. She's fighting the police. She gets arrested. They arrest us both right there. Take us both to jail. Yeah. Our kids were already taken away. They were in, like, a fucking foster care or whatever like that. We both go to jail. Uh, yeah, so this was November of 2015 is when I started this little journey, is when I when I got arrested and, and we both went to jail and everything. I didn't get to South Carolina because I had to go back and see my judge in South Carolina. 
because that's where my warrant was out of. I had a federal warrant out of the Southern District of Southern Carolina, North Northern District of Southern Carolina. What's up? This your boy, Big Man. You already know what it is, man. So let's get right to it. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about YFN Lucci. Now, YFN Lucci just got into the news lately because of something not related to his other court case. Now, what I mean is he was sued by a rapper, him and PMB Rock to be exact, man. Now, the last time we checked in with YFN Lucci... He had just been released from jail after being charged with murder and a couple of other charges involving a shooting that took place in Atlanta, man. It was a real wild situation, and it's gone kind of quiet, man, because, you know, the folks, they were basically coming for wife and Lucci, and they got him. He was arrested. I did several videos. They dropped a 911 call that led to, the, to his arrest. They also, man... Posted the fact that he was out on bond. It was a whole bunch of stuff going on with YF and Lucci last month. Or even, should I say, the month before that. Now, the last we heard of him, he got out. And now we're going to be talking about this court case. Now, in the court case, it looks like him and PMB Rock were being accused of taking somebody's song for their hit, Every Day We Lit. Now, YF and Lucci... And his camp has yet to say anything about this situation. But PNB rocking them got taken to court. And I'm going to tell you how it went. Not in their favor. Now, before we get into the specifics, do me a favor. Make sure you hit that like button. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. And man, let's get it. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, let's talk about this YFN Lucci PNB Rock court case. Now, to be honest, it was more directed towards PNB Rock. Because in the story, it talks about the uh, fact that YF and Lucci might have already made some type of separate agreement for this situation. Now, it doesn't go into any specifics, but this is the case, man. So, there's a New Jersey rapper by the name of Rat Boy Cam. Now, Rat Boy Cam was suing PMB Rock and YF and Lucci. And he actually won the lawsuit. Now, the lawsuit was a copyright infringement case. And it was over the song, Every Day We Lit. Now, for those of you who don't know, YF and Lucci Man was on a tear for a while. He had a whole bunch of hit songs that came out, man. And Every Day We Lit was one of them. Now, it was featuring a Philadelphia rapper by the name of PMB Rock. Now, a lot of you might not be, you know, up on game about PMB Rock. Even though he's pretty significant in the hip-hop game around that time frame. You know what I mean? He's gone a little quiet since then. But, you know, during that time, he was really, really lit out here, man. No pun intended. Now, in this lawsuit, it was saying that PNB Rock and, and the producer June James had stolen from this New Jersey rapper, Rack Boy, now, Rack Boy had a song called Everything Be Lit. Now, just off the name, you could tell they're similar. Now, when I listened to both songs, 
I mean, I kind of heard what was familiar between the two, man, you know, the similarities. But it looks like, man, my opinion doesn't matter because a judge, I mean, basically awarded uh, Rack Boy $1.7 million in a judgment, man. Now, this is what it says in a complex article in the news. It basically says this. It says, in 2018 lawsuit, in a 2018 lawsuit, excuse me, Rack Boy argued that the song Every Day We Lit, on which the three aforementioned artists were featured, is deeply similar to his effort, Everything Be Lit. Earlier this month, Rackboy's lawyer, Christopher W. Nero, secured a significant copyright infringement victory that netted his client over $1.7 million. Since an agreement was already reached with wife and Lucy, like we said earlier, and think it's a game records. The judgment was made against PMB Rock and the song's producer, June James. Now, this gets really interesting because it, the way that they split it up. So basically, in the judgment, they said this. He got over $1.4 million in cash, or he was granted $1.4 million in cash, and close to 268000 in pre-judgment pre interest. So a running and a running royalty plus cost and injunction against James and Allen's exploitation of the infringing work. Man, that sounds like they threw the book at PNB Rock in them, man. Because that yeah, that counts up to about one point seven million. But then the running royalty and all that and interest, man, that's that's crazy, man. So dude took to social media, and a lot of people have been talking about this, right? i seen Say Cheese posted earlier. i seen a lot of different news sources posted. I think Complex News is the closest to this situation. But it looks like... Healthcare providers are under increased scrutiny here in the state of Nevada, particularly in Las Vegas, after the prosecution of Dr. Desai, who was using cost-cutting measures that led to... Uh, hepatitis being spread in his office. On Monday, the jury in the hepatitis C outbreak trial returned a verdict against Dr. Depak Desai and nurse anesthetist Ronald Lakeman. Desai was found guilty on all counts, including second-degree murder, and Lakeman was found guilty on 16 counts related to the outbreak. So it's reasonable to say that healthcare providers can expect additional scrutiny in their office because there's a lot of public outcry with regard to uh, news that's come out of the healthcare industry here in Clark County. NRS section 422 defines healthcare fraud and healthcare fraud can encompass many things such as taking kickbacks from patients to prescribe medication or taking kickbacks to refer to certain doctors. It can also include billing patients for procedures that were unnecessary or procedures that were never actually provided by the physician. Uh, healthcare fraud can also uh, include charging excessive fees for, for procedures. Uh, again, based on events that have occurred in the community, Law enforcement agents are much more aggressive now in scrutinizing 
the actions both of doctors and uh, other personnel in medical care offices. Here at the Las Vegas Defense Group, we represent a wide variety of people who may get caught up in a healthcare fraud investigation, including doctors, office personnel, and even patients. There are so many different people that may work in the office of a medical care provider. If you're under investigation, it could be that you have no knowledge of practices that are going on uh, at the hands of others in your office. It could be that people in your office may be doing billing, that you have no awareness that in fact there's some false billing going on. So the earlier that our law office gets involved in the process, the greater chance that we have of preventing suspicion from turning into prosecution. Matthew is with us in Santa Barbara, California. Hey, Matthew, how are you? I'm doing great, Mr. Ramsey. How are you doing? Better than I deserve, sir. How can I help? Oh, that's, that's great to hear. Um, I am a, yeah, I'm 18, and I've been following your principles for a long time. I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I learned them from my parents, and uh, you know, so I've never had a credit card, so I'm a little bit concerned about how to go about renting once I get out of college, um, because I know a lot of people won't rent to someone with no credit score. Well, there's two types of landlords. Um, there are ones that are what we would call a corporate landlord, meaning an apartment complex maybe that is owned by a real estate investment trust, and it's professionally managed by a management company that manages 27 apartment complexes all over California or something like that. Those kinds of people are going to be very rigid and are going to expect to see something like a credit score. They're, that manager of that apartment complex is not allowed to think for themselves. They're dictated by their corporate office a set of guidelines. Okay, You may not be okay. able to rent there. But here's what the irony is. I'm a multimillionaire, and I couldn't rent there. Yeah. I can buy the complex, but I couldn't rent there. You know, that's the irony of this ridiculous conversation. So, exactly. Um, so that just means that I can't do business with them. There's some people I can't do business with today because they won't do something with me because I don't have a FICO score. And that's okay. That's okay. That's their decision to run their business. But my decision is, is I'm not going to go into debt just to get to play footsie with them. So, but you can rent to a landlord uh, of some kind that is able or willing to think for themselves. So let's kind of think about this. Pretend for a second you were a landlord. All right. And you had a yeah. guy come up, I mean, the way you were raised, let's say you owned a house and you were renting it, and you had a guy come up who's 22 years old and wants to rent the house. He has a fabulous credit score, two car payments, a credit card payment, and two student loans. Okay? Or you have another guy standing there who has no credit score and no debt. 
and let's pretend they have a job making about the same money. Well, if I'm the landlord, I think the guy with no debt and no credit score is a better has a better chance of paying my rent because he doesn't have payments coming out his ears. And so as that's a landlord true, yeah. that's able to th- actually think and not just follow corporate policy, I'm more likely to rent to you than I am your doofus friend who's gone into debt to build up his credit score. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and you don't even have to be a, like a Dave Ramsey acolyte to think that way. You just are using good critical thinking skills and going, uh, people that don't have payments can pay better. Oh, hello. You know what I mean? It's really dumb, right? So... Yeah, you know that's that's what you got to do. Is, is so you you know you knock on the door and this sweet little couple comes out that's retired and they rent, have a rental house and they're going to show it to you and you go well, I just graduated from college I don't believe in borrowing money I don't have a credit score but what that really means to you is is that I'm able to pay the bill because I don't have any payments except this one so it's really good for you that I don't have a credit score and they go well yeah that kind of makes sense and that kind of person will rent to you all day long and they might be a manager in an apartment complex they might be just that sweet little rental ca- ca- retired couple that has a couple of rental properties or somebody like me, you know, that has a bunch of rental properties. And I just use critical thinking skills. I, you know, we do look at people's credit, but we do not rent based on a lack of credit score unless it's more, we're more likely to rent based on a lack of a credit score. Because a lack of a credit score at all means you don't have debt. It's the only way to have no credit score. And not having debt means you have money if you have a job. It's a pretty simple formula for me as a landlord. So that's how you look at it. But, yeah, there's going to be some people who turn you down. But, the, again, dude, they turn me down. And, and, you know, my net worth is tens of millions of dollars. And it's just stupid. You know, it's just the stupid world we live in. Marijuana in his hotel room. Chief Keefe told TMZ his side of the story, which he claimed happened like this. So, me and my homie Trey Savage was in the hotel room chilling when some fat-ass security guard started knocking on the door talking about how we needed to fix a water leak. So, his ass walked in and started looking around at us and immediately gave me the racist look and then started talking shit to me. I told him, I thought you was here to fix a water leak, which he obviously lied because there was no water leaking. Then he immediately started talking shit to us. He told me that he was going to call the police on me, so I called him a bitch. He kept saying how the police about to be on the way to lock me up, so I blew smoke in his face and pulled out 30 racks and said, I got the bond money. There's more where this came from. Keefe says he felt the security guard was racist from the moment he walked in the room. When TMZ asked if the chief was smoking weed in the hotel room, his response was this. As for what I was smoking in the room, everyone needs to listen to my song with Uncle Roe, All I Smoke Is Gas. The next day, Sosa tweeted this to his fans to let him know he was free. Just got out of DeKalb County Jail in Atlanta, mad as f- There's no update on what happened later in that case, but we can probably assume that the charges were dismissed. Sosa's next arrest happened on May 29, 2013, just days after his arrest in Atlanta.
During the early morning hours, the chief was caught going 110 miles per hour in a 55 mile per hour zone while riding in his BMW X6 on the Edens Expressway in Northfield, Chicago. When the police asked Mr. Keefe the simple question, did you know your car was going 110 miles per hour, the chief gave them the iconic response of, well, it's a fast car, that's why I bought it. In the end, Chief Keefe was taken away in custody and was cited with going twice over the posted speed limit and for violating stipulations on his driver's permit. Less than a month later, Chief Keefe was ordered back into court for a speeding incident on the 29th. At sentencing, the 17-year-old rap legend pled guilty to doing 110 miles per hour in a 55-mile-per-hour zone and was given 18 months of probation, 60 hours of community service, random drug tests, 8 hours of traffic school, and a $531 fine. The chief was now free to leave, but as he left the Skokie courthouse, police arrested him once again on a misdemeanor trespassing charge. The chief was then rebooked and re-released moments later. Now, after spending the summer as a law-abiding citizen, Chief Keefe turned himself in on October 15, 2013 to the Cook County authorities after testing positive for marijuana. The judge sentenced the chief to 20 days in county jail and was released on November 8, 2013. On his way out of jail, Chief Keefe was notified that one of his conditions to get out required going to rehab for his weed problems. So, the chief did just that, and immediately flew to beautiful Los Angeles, California, and checked himself into rehab. After spending a couple of months in rehab, Chief Keefe was free to return home to his mansion in Chicago. Almost immediately after returning home, the chief went back to his old ways and began chiefing on that good Southside Chicago Kush like nothing ever happened. But that didn't last for too long because on March 5th, 2014, less than two weeks after checking out of rehab, Chief Keefe was pulled over in Highland Park, Illinois early in the morning for having expired tags on his 2010 Jeep Cherokee. When the officers approached the vehicle, they claimed it reeked of pot, and the chief allegedly admitted to smoking pot before driving. The police then made the chief do a field sobriety test, and let's just say, the chief failed. Chief Keefe was eventually charged with a DUI, driving on a suspended license, and cited for having no proof of insurance. Mr. Keefe was quickly released after posting a $300 bail, now, you're probably assuming that his next encounter with the law will have something to do with the chief going to court for his DUI and getting sentenced, but no, that's not the case. Chief Keefe apparently had enough of Chicago and decided to skip court and move to Los Angeles. For good. Like, literally, for good. The moment Chief Keefe steps back in Chicago, he will be arrested immediately due to his warrants and due to the mayor of Chicago's ban on Keith Kozart, aka Chief Keefe. Now, this sounds bad, but it was honestly one of the best decisions Chief Keefe has ever made. Since his move to Los Angeles, Chief Keefe has stayed out of trouble for almost three years with zero run-ins with the law. 
But his hot streak came to a tragic end after he was arrested on January 26, 2017, after the Los Angeles police raided his Tarzana mansion due to his alleged connection in the violent armed home invasion of his former music producer. Sources say that producer Ramsey the Great was robbed at gunpoint in his Devonshire home and accused Chief Keefe and friends of breaking into his home and holding them hostage with an AK-47 on January 19, 2017. Ramsey also stated that he was robbed of cash, a Rolex, and other valuables during the incident. Chief Keefe and friends later bailed themselves out and the case was ultimately thrown out in April 2019 due to Ramsey the Great getting sentenced to 10 years in prison for charges of human trafficking. Remorse now, even though they may want to do it. In, in, in your position of sitting on the bench, my question is, if somebody has pleaded not guilty and went through a trial, and I know that it's a very small percentage in your courtroom, can that person still do something to make amends and to reconcile and say, I was wrong, I wish I got this message sooner, I didn't, or does that come across to you less plausible? Yeah, and I think we've got a whole variety of folks that kind of fit into that equation, right? And I've had a trial where the guy said, I'm guilty for selling drugs, but that gun ain't mine. And so going into trial on that case by saying, I'm guilty of the drugs, I'm not guilty of the gun, then he's lost nothing in, in the credibility standpoint. There's other folks that maybe truly are innocent. And then they will have not lost anything in that situation. And I, you know, I pray to God that we don't convict innocent people. But I know that that does. If it happens once, it happens too much. And then there's other folks that are not at that point, and maybe you were at, the, at that stage or not, where you can't own up to it. Um, I think at any point, when somebody owns up to a problem, that's, that's better than none. If, if the person's truly guilty, if that's what we're talking about, then owning up at any time, usually it's 90 days or more between a conviction or a change of plea and sentencing, um, that's not that long of time. But then in other situations, it's long enough to figure out, I screwed up, I made a mistake, I've done something wrong here, and I'm committed to improving it. And I think most judges are really good about judging if that's a genuine apology and a genuine attempt to fix it versus I'm trying to shave a few years off my sentence. And I would agree that it's never too early and it's never too late to begin working toward a better life and working toward a, an opportunity to reconcile with society and particularly victims. What thoughts do you have on individuals who really come clean during the pre-sentence investigation report, providing a full written narrative to the probation officer that doesn't excuse their misconduct, 
but rather shows the influences that led that person there. Does that, when you see that at the very earliest stage, such as the pre-sentence investigation report, does that help your assessment or your deliberations over what an appropriate and fair sentence is? Yeah, it definitely does. I, I think it helps for a public defender or CJA counsel to be able to cite to the PSR to say, this is how it got there. You know, this person's father was never in their life. This person sold drugs at this point to get this. This person did these things, and that tells the story and puts it all in context. So what we talked about at the beginning of this interview, the sentencing guidelines have no reflection of humanity. It's a grid, it's a chart, and I put you on X, Y chart. On the other hand, the 3553 factors, that statute mandates I put a human face on the individual standing in front of me. And so if there's, if there's things in the PSR that the lawyer can cite to and that the defendant can cite to and talk about it, you're creating your own evidence at that point. For good or for bad, you're telling your PSR writer in the probation office, here's everything you need to know about me and how I got here. Um, that, that is good advocacy, if nothing else. It sounds like you're reiterating what, what, I, what I heard you say at the beginning of this interview and that what Sean and I are always telling people who are reading our materials is that the most important person in the sentencing hearing is the defendant himself. He shouldn't outsource all of his remorse to the defense attorney, but rather should make the investment of time and energy to help the judge see that individual for who he is and what influences led him there. Uh, am I correct in understanding that's what you're telling us? You, you're correct. And I may backpedal a little bit because the lawyer can help put that together, right? And I, at least in my district, and I can't speak to anybody else's, I have a lot of respect for a public defender's office and some of our frequent flyers on the CJA panel. Um, we appoint those people. We're used to seeing them. We've developed a sense of respect and go through. Is there an age cap on state justices? We yes. talked about they had to be at least a lawyer for five or 10 years, but for state judges, is there a max age? A recent Supreme Court amendment raised that from 70 to 75. So at 75, on their 75th birthday, they have to retire. Okay, so you can't be any older than 75. Can't be any older okay. than 75. So what about federal court judges? How does it work? How does a lawyer become a federal court judge? Um, how does that process differ from state? Well, number one, the judicial nominating commissions are not required for federal judge selections. We have it in Florida, and that's because our two senators have agreed to do it that way. A lot of states, the senator on his own picks his best friend or picks somebody he knows, and he gets sent up to, for a judgeship. In Florida, we have to go through the same process as the state. They put out an advertisement saying, look, you want to be a federal judge? Apply the Judicial Nominating Commission. They're appointed by the senators 
if they have a senator that is of the same party as the president. If you don't, then it's a congressman. Then they interview everybody just like they do in the state court, and then they send recommendations up to the senator. The senator then picks the one person out of the recommendation they like, then that person goes to the president, and then the president has a process through the Department of Justice. They investigate, they do background checks, then the president makes an appointment, and then I'm going to shortcut it, and then goes to the United States Senate for advice and consent or approval of the appointment. Now, if you remember, I didn't mention the Florida State Senate because in Florida, when the governor makes the appointment, that person's a judge. He does not have to go to the Florida Senate for approval. Okay, so that's a big difference. So they have to be confirmed by the United States Senate, but the state court judges, at least in Florida, don't have to be confirmed by anybody if the governor picks them. That's right. Okay. Big difference. Right. So what is the uh, tenure, as we like to say, for federal court judges? Federal court judge is a lifetime appointment. Life, appointed for life. Anybody. Yeah. Any it, federal judge, lifetime and appointment. And it makes a big difference in how they act and rule on cases and how things are and how quickly they move right. things or change hearings on us yeah, right. with, you know, they don't, have, they don't have to campaign every six years. Right. They don't have to be popular. They can say, show up today. Actually, we're going to move it to next week, whether you have something right. or not. Right. Um, okay, and then what are the salaries for federal court judges? Well, a district court judge is 200, that's the basic trial court, and that's the one that I have, is $216,400. Okay, so more than state court judges. More than state okay, court judges. Okay, so federal judges. court judges yes. make more than that. So why would somebody want to be a federal court judge versus a state court judge, or why, why is there the difference in what type of people are attracted to the different positions? Well, federal judges deal with bigger cases. Um, uh, there's minimum financial cases. There's federal crimes. They just deal with a bigger case type, but a smaller case load. They don't have as many cases in federal court. So it's seen as a better position, right. more prestigious position. Right. Is it often that state court judges become federal court judges or just straight from lawyer to federal court It judge? happens quite a bit. Uh, in fact... Which way? What happens is that the state ones become federal. Okay. And I've never seen it go the other way. Uh, well, just recently, though, two Florida Supreme Court justices appointed by uh, Governor DeSantis, both of them got elevated to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, a federal appellate court by Trump, within like a week of each other. So he plucked two state court judges from the Supreme Court and put them in the appellate court in the federal system. Okay, so what is the percentage, would you say, that state court judges versus just regular lawyers make the jump to federal court judge? That's what I'm asking. Okay. So, like, is it more lawyers? Is it 50-50? I would it say it's, prob it's probably a 50-50 split. Okay. So it's not it's not more common for you to take that as a stepping stone to become right. a state court judge than federal court judge. You can go just straight to federal court. Right. So if you... Does it help if you have a lot of federal court practice, if you're a federal prosecutor, whatever, getting a federal judgeship versus state? It's hard to say what really will help. Uh, for instance, Besides we politics, just, obviously, right. that's the number I one. Mean, so there's some federal judges uh, that are federal judges, but when there were uh, regular lawyers, never tried a case, yet they became federal judges. 
There are um, prof law professors, never tried a case, but became federal judges. Uh, you really can't say, uh, and it really goes to the whim of the president when you really so, think about it. So really, the judges that are appointed have a lot less scrutiny almost, it sounds like, than the judges that are voted on because people can look into and pick what they want the most versus just kind of one person or a group of nine people looking in and seeing if you check the boxes that they feel is important. I, 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 in my opinion, I would disagree with that. Okay. I would. I think the people selected by judicial nominating commissions are, on the average, better qualified than elections. I'm here with Premier Nevada criminal defense lawyer Michael Becker. And Michael, today I want to ask you about elder abuse laws here in Nevada. And obviously we have, uh, you know, a, a sizable senior population here. And we're seeing more and more people get arrested for elder abuse. First of all, what is the legal definition of elder abuse? Elder abuse is the commission of a crime against someone who is 60 or older. And it's divided into several categories. Abuse, neglect, isolation, and exploitation. And by exploitation, I mean that would typically be like sort of embezzling money or, you know, handling grandma's accounts and kind of, you know, siphoning off money for yourself, that sort of thing. That's correct. We see those cases often. Um, the allegations are against a child or a caretaker who has access to the checkbooks or the credit cards or the ATM card, or uh, perhaps even uh, has access to the home and things come missing from the home. Now, if someone is convicted of elder abuse, what sort of penalties are they typically looking at? It would depend. Um, if there were uh, some type of neglect that did not involve injury, uh, a first offense could be a gross misdemeanor. If you had abuse that led to physical injury, you'd be looking at a felony. With regard to the exploitation elements, the greater the amount of money that is lost or the value of the property that is taken, the more severe the crime. So it can range anywhere from gross misdemeanor charges to felony charges. So from relatively minor charges to very serious charges where someone could potentially spend years in prison. Absolutely. Now, obviously, I mean, you know, it sounds terrible, the, the whole idea of elder abuse. And, you know, intuitively, there's nothing worse than you know, sort of harming a senior citizen. But, but as bad as that is, um, unfortunately... There are a lot of innocent people who get accused of this. And, and, and a lot of times police and prosecutors rush to judgment and, and innocent people find themselves being charged. I mean, have you found that to be the case? I, I would agree. I mean, I think we increasingly live in a society where when bad things happen, we like to allocate blame for bad things to happen. So, for example, if... Uh, a child who is a caretaker goes off to the store and they come back and mom has fallen and hit her head. You know, if they don't charge you for the abuse itself and say you did it, 
they're 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 going to say, well, well, you left her home alone, and you shouldn't have done so, and therefore you, your neglect uh, created a situation where the likelihood of injury was greater. So I do think in this arena, elder abuse, you see a lot more charging that uh, juries ultimately find very questionable. And I mean, a lot of times if, if an elderly person is injured um, or, or sort of uh, not properly cared for or you know, loses, loses money, loses their nest egg, I mean, there's, it, there's, sort of, there's an outrage and there's sort of a desire to point the finger at someone. Uh, but sometimes, I mean, the finger is pointed at the wrong person. That's correct. I mean, um, for example, if something is missing and the caretaker is charged for it, you know, it doesn't mean that that caretaker had exclusive access to the home or, uh, or items belonging in the home, but sometimes the assumption might be that because they had such close access that they must have been the party involved in the exploitation of the elderly person. But the prosecutor still has to prove those charges uh, and usually to a jury uh, by the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And you can't be convicted of elderly abuse if it's a gross uh, misdemeanor or a felony charge unless a jury unanimously agrees that you're guilty. And as a criminal defense lawyer, have you had a lot of success over the years in defending people who are charged with elder abuse? I have. Um, we've seen a lot of cases. Most of our cases involve uh, financial issues where there are allegations sometimes brought by battling children who are each alleging that one that 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 you know one of the children had had uh, had taken advantage of the parents. One rival sibling pointing the finger at that, the other. That's right. And um, I, I believe that we've gotten very good results in those types of cases. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you've been charged with elder abuse in Las Vegas or anywhere in the state of Nevada, call us at 702-DEFENSE and let's hear your side of the story. Let's see what we can do to help you get your charges reduced or dismissed.